You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, business, and philanthropic world. Today, our guest is Brian Berry. Brian is co-founder of CoLab Youth, a career development program for young adults and youth. He is also the CEO of the Lighthouse Leadership Group. Prior to that, Brian was chief of staff for the LA Chamber of Commerce, supporting the board of directors and the chamber team. He's a past president of the Dale Carnegie Global Corporate Solutions and the National Human Resources Association Board of Directors. Brian has over 30 years of diversified international experience in performance improvement, curricula de- design, leading cross-functional teams in numerous sectors. He is a coach, a business advisor, and philanthropist working in the nonprofit and business sectors. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Gary. Nice introduction, and uh, it's an honor and privilege to be here. Well, I've got to say, it's a great introduction. You wrote it, I read it. It's not too bad. <laughs> so first, can you share a little bit about your path from uh, your college days up to the business world? Yeah, well, interesting. You know, my background is is clinical orthopedics and sports medicine. So I was trained through college and even through high school as an athletic trainer. And I was always interested in sports and science and seemed like a perfect blend. But with that, I was always involved with nonprofits with that work, you know, particularly the American Red Cross and becoming certified as a lifesaver and instructor and then instructor trainer. While in my core roles, I was always involved in one way or another in some kind of charity. And then when I was uh, my first job out of graduate school was at University of Colorado in Boulder and uh, immediately got involved with the American Red Cross there and um, also the Paralympics, um, Special Olympics from a medical standpoint. So I was always connected one way or another with with nonprofits out there and getting other sponsors to come on in, different volunteers. So that philanthropic role had a practical use too, because I would get my team trained and get them involved in the community. So that's kind of all evolved. And then, uh, then I got into medical manufacturing. I helped them vent a knee brace, which is the knee brace you see on all the college players. And then I got into that element. And that's also where um, I became certified as a Dale Carnegie coach. And in that professional development element, uh, you know, the question would always come up, you know, for my participants, you know, what can I do to really boost my career? And, you know, as uh, you and I, when we first met, you know, one of the, one of the tips I give everybody is to find a nonprofit you know, that you're really, really, really passionate about at this point in your life and career. And, and what, what drew you to the Red Cross? Well, how'd you get involved in that? Red Cross was a practical element because I was interested in safety, uh, life-saving, those elements. And to become a certified athletic trainer, 
one of the requirements was you need to be certified in first aid and CPR. And I've always had the, the mindset is, you know, the only way I'm convinced my team owns a concept, technique, skill, procedure, method, is you better be able to teach it to, to me and you better be able to teach it to your peers. So I would insist that everybody that was on my team became that good at that skill. And that way I knew, you know, we can handle any emergency. Well, as we get to know each other, one thing you don't know about me is that I served on the board of directors of the American Red Cross up in the Bay Area. So I was on the board for seven years and we covered uh, Monterey up to the Oregon border. And, uh, no kidding. Yeah. It was, yeah an, just... it was an exciting time. I really enjoyed my work with the Red Cross. Oh, it's great. Great organization. It's really shifted to the uh, uh, the CEO for that region is a good buddy of mine, Barry, Barry Falk, who I'll introduce you to. But uh, I just spoke to him yesterday. When, when you were uh, coming out of college, did you think you were going to become a senior executive in the world or a leadership person? Or, uh, you know, what, what do you what do you what do you dream about doing? Yeah, out of college, I knew I'd be running my own program, particularly, you know, I had my sights on I'm running a sports medicine program at a major division one institution. So with that, aside from the actual medical care for the athletes was putting together the cross-functional team. And I also had a vast undergraduate, graduate and physician fellowship. So I was developing their careers along with delivering the medical care. So you kind of rolled into it pretty easily out of college then. Yeah, it was pretty natural, you know, so when you get into, you know, that element, you're dealing with all different levels of the medical community from orthopedics to psychiatry to nutrition to radiology and the whole bit. Now, were you, an were you an athlete yourself? I was, yeah. I ran track in undergrad and was also an athletic trainer, which was nice. So that allowed me to really get insight, you know, with all the different sports that were out there. But personally... I didn't reach five foot until the ninth grade, which was also how I got into sports medicine. Because I remember getting pummeled in the ninth grade and thinking, eh, "I gotta be on the other <laughs> end. Of this. I gotta be on the other end of this pen light." <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yeah. Well, had I known that a utility baseball player coming off the bench could make millions of dollars, I would have played much harder in in little league on the bench, you know, than I did. But <laughs> My talent was limited. That's right. That's right. Uh, you you seem to get involved in the Del Carnegie world. How did that come about? How, what attracted you to that? Oh, geez. You know, when when I got into medical manufacturing, I was hired by my knee brace manufacturer, Smith & Nephew Dondroy, which is in Carlsbad, California. And while there, you know, I was in charge of the entire global knee brace division. And uh, I had another flux capacitor product idea to to incorporate virtual reality into physical therapy and in sports medicine. So Gary, I brought that to my my board, which had operations, Fed reg, finance, engineering, the whole bit. My CEO was sitting down at the end of the table. Never forget it. He was a British knight, full beard, very proper, and a good guy. And uh, you know, he looked me in the eye in front of everybody and goes, he goes, okay, B-Square, we love your idea. Smashing, love it. You're going to present this to the global conference in three weeks. And Gary, I think I blacked out. <laughs> As a leader, he pulled me aside. He goes, he goes, relax, matey. 
I'm going to send you to this course this weekend. It was the three-day Dale Carnegie Strategic Presentations Workshop. And it was intense. And I was in there with other CEOs. And I'm thinking, you know, how the hell did I get in here? And, uh, but that course saved my bacon. It was really interesting, Gary, because, you know, I did the talk. We're out on the balcony, you know, drinking scotch. And Les Cross, the CEOs there, and the president. They both look at me and they go, Brian, you know, we're very proud of you. You know, you did a great job. I go, well, thank you. I said, and, and thank you for sending me that course. I couldn't have done it without it because it was really interesting because they both look at each other right there and they go, we know. And they said, we got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? They said, well, your idea is not a knee brace. I go, yeah. I said, we're a knee brace company, Brian. They said, oh, geez, probably should have thought that one through a little bit better. They go, why don't you start your own company? <laughs> and, you know, when they say, you know, when we plan, God laughs. And so not a bajillion years, I think that was going to happen. So I went out and found three physician buddies, twice my age, to start the company. And then I dragged my Dale Carnegie coach into the formula. And then I went through the certification process. So running organizations, startups, while coaching as a Dale Carnegie instructor, on a global basis, allowed me to make those connections, bring that business relevance right to my participants as a business owner myself, which gave me that street cred. So that's how that all happened. I think one of the challenges of, of millennials today is they don't get that kind of training necessarily, uh, though they may not always need it. But uh, I remember, you know, someone gave me the advice one time, the main courses to take in college is a public speaking class, and a basic accounting class. And after that, everything else will fall into place. Now, you're, you hit something there, but our, uh, our parents said the same exact thing about you and I. The courses, millennials, and even the media generation, which is inappropriately called Gen Z, because that's kind of stupid, because there ain't anything left after Z. <laughs> but the media generation are the ones that I work with closely in uh, uh, the millennials. They're probably the sharpest that are out there. We've got BS detectors. There's five generations, Gary, in the workforce now, labeled a little bit differently, depending on who you're going to They have traditionalists, those are kind of 70 and older. They're still out there. Baby boomers like you and I, we're the knuckleheads that think we could do it well, but we usually screw it up and we got the best soundtrack out there. <laughs> the next level is the X and Y generation. And those are the least number of bodies out there globally. Those are the ones that are supposed to be going from director to VP, SVP, CEO, just not enough of them because their parents all got divorced, quit having kids. So there's a major gap there. Then you have the millennials who have had a bad rap, depending on who you're talking to. But remember the millennium was 22 years ago, almost fifth of a century. And then the media generation we were discussing. And they're the ones that think the millennials are idiots. <laughs> but everybody's got a uh, everybody's got a role to contribute. That's what I do. Is I, I, tap, I, I tap that untapped potential. I love the general generalizations we make about the categories, but they, they seem to fit so well. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Most successful people speak about uh, mentors in their life. Who had a great impact on your life? Sure. Dad? 
let's go back to high school. I remember wearing a fall sports banquet. Place is jammed, and this is in Detroit, Michigan. So we got all the all the teachers there, all the families. The girls have just won their first state championship ever. The boys had just won the football state championship. So the place was electric. And um, the MC at the banquet had everybody in the palm of his hand with no notes. And he knew names. He was connecting with the audience. And it was my dad. Right then, the senior football captain, who never talked to me the whole year. It wasn't mean to me. just had no idea I was alive. <laughs> you know, looked down the row, and he caught my eye. And he goes, he goes, hey, hey. You know, I was a freshman, too. He goes, hey, is that your dad up there? yep he just kind of smiled and nodded i thought god you know my stock just went way up (laughs) but at that point i thought you know i want to do that i want to learn how to be in front of a group in command and audience and took all the speech classes i could everything i could screwed them all up but just kept at it and here i am today so dad's one of them then i had a four foot four chief of orthopedic surgery mentor of mine and when i met her Gary, she was about 174 years old, which makes her like Yoda <laughs> now. And she said something that changed my life. She goes, you know what, B squared, you can always tell somebody that's smart by the answers and information they get. She goes, but you can always tell somebody that's wise by the questions they ask. She looked me right in the eye right then. She said, now what kind of leader are you going to be? I never forgot that. So when you do all the blabbing, it becomes wah, 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 wah. When you ask the right questions, the other person's going to describe exactly what they need. And that's what Some, a real leader is. Somebody said to me a, a while back, you know, isn't it hard fundraising? You know, and I said, well, not really. You just sit down with a prospective donor and say, tell me about yourself. And you listen. Because people love telling you about their successes and the, how they got to where they are. And I think that's why these podcasts are so successful is that people want to know what other people have done and how they came to be what they are today. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's just, you know, Diogenes said we have two ears and one tongue, so we do more listening than blabbing. You got involved in a youth development organization. How did that come about and, and what is that all about today? What is What does that organization do? Well, Colab spelled K-O. LLAB Youth is the premier youth and teen workforce development program here in the area. And it was uh, aligned with the Boys and Girls Clubs throughout the Los Angeles region, region of which there are a gajillion of them. But this was the, the program that uh, helped with the things you just described, you know, public speaking, leadership, attitude, and making sure that that body of work is ready to hit the workforce. And then on the flip side, making sure organizations know this body of pretty cool, you know, up and coming leaders are available, you know, because there is a major, major employee gap right now. So bridging that gap, I got involved uh, with that. Mary Hewitt is the executive director, dear friend of mine. And she's the one that's pioneered it. And how many people does it serve? How, how large an organization is it? This is, I think, our fourth year and got about 1,800 graduates so far. Wow, that's an that's um, amazing number. That's great. Yeah, we have 77 in our current cohort right now. We're just about ready to wrap that up and then we'll start the spring one. We're probably going to have about 85, 90 in that one. 
And how do, how are people attracted? How do they know learn about the organization? Well, word of mouth, and also we work collaboratively with the Boys and Girls Clubs, which also has a body, you know, teams right there, but all the different organizations right. that are out there. And uh, we just received a really nice gift, Gary, from uh, Wells Fargo, a million dollars for Colab. And uh, so we have horsepower with Target, uh, T-Mobile, Disney, different groups like that that are really committed to developing, you know, the next set of leaders. That set of employees. Wonderful. Now, you've been a leader in the nonprofit community as well as a business community. You've been a board member. You've been a donor. What speaks to you about organizations that you get involved with? What attracts you to them? Making sure that their culture is in alignment with the vision, mission, and values of the organization. Because if it's just for the sake of getting their name out there, it's disingenuous. So we want to make sure that any organization, whether it's a garage band startup, mid-level org, or Fortune One, that their alignment as to what they want to do in the community matches the nonprofit. And it could be Center for Abused Women, it could be cancer, it could be youth, whatever. So my job is to do what you were just describing, you know, sit down and ask questions, find out what makes them tick where their passions are and really kind of get that North star aligned with where they want to go. So really paying attention to that because they're all different. They all have a different you know, theme and rhythm. So you want to make sure you align that. What excites you about the work that you do today? Connecting weird, cool, interesting, unique people with people they had no idea they were going to connect with and watch the success stories. That gets me, that gets me pretty fired up. Great, yeah. great. Tell me a little bit about your experience and what your business career brings to your philanthropic world. How do they kind of match up against each other? Interesting you said, you asked that because that just came up a little bit yesterday. You know, how'd you get into doing all this and what skills can it? So working as an athletic trainer in division one college athletics, I had to deal with a lot of psychotic, egotistical division one coaches, you know, which makes it real easy to deal with chairman of the boards, presidents, and CEOs. I mean, it's not even a fair fight. And plus, my ego was crushed years ago. So I have no trouble going in and boldly asking for contributions and uh, in fundraising. But I, I work off of building trust, respect, rapport, and credibility, and really making that connection there. So I think those skills and dealing with different age levels, different cross-functional uh, systems and teams really paid huge dividends. And that comes from my background in sports medicine, really. Now, there's a lot of talk in, in both worlds uh, about conflict resolution and conflict issues. Do you find it better today than it was 20, 30 years ago, or do you find people about the same? Oh, an, an interesting observation there. You know, conflict isn't necessarily bad when you look at it strategically, it means they were listening. They're just not convinced yet. So getting that common ground and finding out the, uh, the solution, which usually reveals itself when you listen, uh, pays up. But, uh, you know, I get asked this all the time. So tech, biotech, entertainment, defense, retail, hospitality, food, healthcare, it doesn't matter the industry or the size. Uh, what I've found globally, Gary, is the common challenges are two things, attitude and communication. 
process improvement is easy to fix. In fact, that's a blast when attitude and communication are in place. But when attitude and communication are out of whack, process improvement is darn near impossible. And Gary, it always starts with the boss. You know, Peter F. Drucker, the founder of all org design, once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm-hmm. It's always the boss. Man. There's an Asian proverb that says, a fish leads and a fish dies by the head. So that background of dealing with Division One coaches, I go right for the business owner first. One of the things you mentioned was that you, you put your ego aside, and I think... You know, when I ran the I ran the largest synagogue in San Francisco for almost 17 years, and someone asked me what it, what was my main job, and I said make the rabbis look good. That's right. Yeah, or look good for deciding to hire us. <laughs> All they got to do is, is is walk into the room and everything's ready for them. You know, we just I, I stand very well in the back of the room. In fact, I was telling someone yesterday that even when I go to the symphony at Disney Symphony Hall and I I stand waiting to go in, I guess I look so professional people come up and ask me where the bathroom is you know <laughs> well yeah, i'm right there with you yeah yeah can you park this car for me yeah absolutely <laughs> um what are some of your top priorities going forward in the next few years what do you want to accomplish that you haven't done so already help people reimagine what they're going to do strategically as we come and climb out of this pandemic and those organizations and individuals that have just been pummeled need a safe harbor to repair. Flip that around, I think you and I agree, you know, there's just as many orgs and individuals who have just absolutely shined and thrived during the pandemic. What do you do? How do you keep them from slipping back? How do you help them scale? That's where the White House Leadership Group you know, came in because first of all, I'm a White House geek. I love the image. But those that have just been crushed from the pandemic need a safe harbor, you know, to kind of repair. And then those that are doing well now, what do you do? How do you gear up for the next adventure? So that's, that's kind of where it is. We haven't talked much yet about Lighthouse. Tell us about what it is and, and what, what it does. Well, this is, uh, it's been around literally since I was a sophomore in college, where one of the ways I made beer and pizza money in undergrad, other than working at a beer and pizza place, which I did, I used to lecture on Paul McCartney's rumored death and all the clues on the albums, if you remember that. Right. I remember the stories. Yeah. So I always had kind of a side gig like that, that anything that fell out of my core role, my core employment description, fell into B-squared consulting. So when I left the chamber, on a good note, I'm still an ambassador with them. Um, I thought, yeah, let's shake up the name a little bit. And that's where the lighthouse came in. I thought that'd be a good image to help people rethink and reimagine their strategic plans. So that's where that came in. So I help individuals that are struggling, those that are doing well, doing a lot of one-on-one career advancement and career counseling with executives. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you know, a few years ago, a law passed in California that uh, organizations, public organizations, are required to have women board members 
and so I'm working with a lot of women executives how to nail a uh, successful and meaningful board role and then help organizations pick those candidates there. So been working on that, a lot of board governance, board restructuring, helping un, uh, uncooperative, cantankerous, dysfunctional boards to turn things around and get that going. So that's where I am now. Okay. That, that's the fun part. You know, you were talking about millennials and, and what did you call it? Not Gen Xers. You had a term media generation, media generation that, you know, they have all the computer technology that we didn't have, but we have the great rock music that they don't have. <laughs> so. That's exactly right. Which they like. <laughs> Which well, we they have, like. That, that is for sure. You know, my daughter, when she was in high school, she is now 29, but when she was in high school, she had a, a four-week class on the 60s, and they studied everything from the war in Vietnam to the public speech, uh, the uh, free speech movement and civil rights. And she said, well, what did you do during those days, Dad? I said, marched. <laughs> marched, yeah, exactly. marched and, and tried to avoid the draft as best I could, you know, oh, at the God, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when she went marching last summer with the, the Black Lives Movement uh, thing, and she said, I'm, I'm going to march down Hollywood Boulevard with all my friends in protest. And I said, great, let me email you a name in my contact list. She said, who's that? And I said, the best criminal attorney in Los Angeles. And just in case you need it, you'll have it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, so um, when you're not working, what do you like to do? Play. I've got three boys, all mercifully taller, smarter, and a whole hell of a lot funnier than me. And the uh, youngest one's a senior in high school, and the other two uh, up in college, up at Santa Barbara. So play with them. I'm um, also a magician member at the world-famous Magic Castle. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a great place. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of fun. So I do a lot of that. And then, you know, some mountain biking and uh, hiking and trying to keep my boyish figure. So my, for my listeners who are not in the L.A. area, and I've got a lot of those, tell, them, uh, tell us what the Magic Castle is. Magic Castle is the home of the Academy of Magical Arts. So it is literally the most exclusive private club that's out there because you can only get in the magic castle as a guest of a magician member but that's our that's our clubhouse so we're open seven days a week and uh, magicians from all over the planet come on in perform all week in various venues throughout the so if you can picture the animal house meets the haunted mansion meets the playboy mansion <laughs> with magic in it with a five-star chef and uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, to your listeners, if uh, you're into that, uh, you know, let me know. We'll figure out a way to get you in. Well, you know, it's always unique when you find out things you didn't know about. And uh, so the Magic Castle is one of those special things in L.A. When I was, I spent a little bit of my time summers in Vermont because that's where my, my wife was from. Uh, I grew up there. And I was there one summer and they had the International Jugglers Convention there. Now, I didn't know there was a Jugglers Association or a Jugglers Convention, and there there were, you know, 2,000 jugglers on the campus of University of Vermont walking around juggling things all, all through the campus, and it was like, wow, this is just amazing. So there's always things you find out about that are kind of unique. Over your career, you've had a lot of relationships with people and board members and clients and professionals. Uh, tell me about one of your great favorite experiences you've had with someone. 
With the, let's work most recent. So I mentioned uh, that collab, we just received that unsolicited gift from Wells Fargo for a million dollars. That caught us by surprise, Gary. And we asked them, they said, you know, what, what generated this? And they said, we've been watching what you and Colab have done for the youth. We want to be part of that. So that was a, a pretty cool thing. Yeah, yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, and another, another element was when a buddy of mine, Jim McGee, was named executive director of the Ventura chapter of the American Red Cross. And I saw that he had a business acumen. So I, and we immediately worked together, Gary, on restructuring the entire board because we had a, this board of, geez, almost 100 that some weren't engaged, some were just doing it for the name, and we had to really make some hard decisions there. And what happened, we got that straightened out, and then American Red Cross National said, nice job. Guess what? You're going to merge now with Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County. <laughs> so we had to redo the whole thing again. And then we just caught our breath. They said, well, wait a minute. Nice job. You're going to do the same thing. You're going to be the central coast region. So literally from Fresno all the way down, you're familiar with that whole neck of the woods. So we did that three times. So the leadership of Jim McGee and particularly the board members there, amazing work. And I'm still very, very close with all those friends. That's you know, what happened in the Red Cross, the consolidation, because in the Bay Area, we were just San Francisco when I started. And seven years later, we were the entire Northern California region up to the border. So, right, uh, right. And, you know, today with, with the pandemic and, and the results of the pandemic, there's a lot of consolidations, unifications, mergers going on in the in the nonprofit sector. And uh, I don't know where it's all going to pen out, but it is a challenge for people today. It is, you know, and, you know, that old phrase in, in business, you know, it's never a merger. It's always an acquisition. Right. Right. Well, I heard the word yesterday from someone unification. I use that today, but uh, the two organizations, we're, we're going to have a unification and I'm going, okay, well, someone's going to be in charge in the end. And who's that CEO going to be <laughs> one or yeah, the other? Exactly. That, yeah. As they say, yeah. So what Musical did I forget? Yeah. What did I forget to ask you? What should I, 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 I have a list of questions and we're almost done, but what did I forget? Well, what should I have said? Well, one question is how can we inspire others to get involved? And, um, you know, what do they do? So at different points, again, whether you're a brand new student out of college, mid-level exec, older CEO, find a nonprofit that you're really, really, really passionate about at this point in your life. And don't just volunteer, Gary. I consider that human being one-on-one ought to be doing that anyway, serving a leadership role in that organization. You know, even if it's the chair of the envelope looking committee, right? There'll be several benefits. The first benefit is you'll be working with like-minded value-based executives out there. There are worse people to hang out with, aren't there? That's <laughs> one thing. Second thing, you're gonna be able to hone your problem analysis, decision-making, communication, leadership, collaboration, all that stuff where you may not necessarily get to in your core job. That's a good thing. Third thing, it's going to look good on your resume because when I interview somebody, one of my questions is, please describe what leadership role you serve in your community. 
I'll either get a blank face or an answer. Now we've got two distinct rows to select from. Call it a character attribute. That's the third thing. Fourth thing, it's good for the Karma credit card, which comes with a very, very detailed invoice. And one of my favorite quotes is a Belgian proverb. Don't expect your ship to come in unless you've sent one out. Right. There you go. And then the last thing, you're going to make some smoke and cool friends. That's a good thing. Well, my last podcast uh, that I recorded uh, that went live yesterday, after 21, I actually interviewed my brother as a guest, uh, my twin. And he reminded me uh, that we both got started in, in, uh, in the world of philanthropy when our bosses in the banking world, we were both bankers at the time back in uh -huh. our 20s, took us to a City of Hope chapter event and said, write a check and you're going to get involved in this. It's a great organization. And the people we met back then that were lawyers and bankers and insurance folks and all this, primarily around the apparel industry, we're still friends with them today. We still have contact with them today because we had a foundation that we that we built together and we, we were all young. We learned, uh, we managed, we made mistakes and, and we learned from them. You know, it was good, good stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And we hear that all the time. And all those different age brackets that we discussed a little bit earlier had the same response you just described to it. And that's like, pretty I, cool. I, I have a nephew who's uh, and, a, and, a, and a niece that are both like 39, 40 years old now. And I kind of said, like, let me take you to the L.A. Food Bank and show you what real people are doing on the ground helping each other, because you, you grew up in a privileged world and you have no idea. Right, <laughs> you know right. what's going on going on out there so yeah it provides some scale doesn't it yeah well thank you very much for being my guest i really appreciate it it's good good getting to know you and have my listeners get to hear about your story and and i, I should mention that while this is an audio podcast in the background we have your red cross certificates or badges or things behind you there which is always good to see and uh I uh, I appreciate that work that you did. I'm, I didn't realize that our paths crossed in the Red Cross world. So that's very good. So thank you again for being here. Gary, well done and keep up the great work and keep inspiring others. Thank you again for listening to The Road to Philanthropy. As a philanthropic advisor and a nonprofit consultant, I encourage people to get involved and volunteer in their community as well as make financial gifts. Currently, I'm serving on the board of Hallel 818 at Cal State Northridge, and I'm going to be the vice chairman of the board of Safe Parking LA, which provides parking for the homeless who live in their vehicles. I encourage you all to get involved. Also, I'd like to give you a recap in case you just joined us recently on the road to philanthropy about some of our previous guests. They've included Lisa Tabak, Director of Philanthropy for the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco, Sarah Jennings, Senior Philanthropy Officer for the V Foundation, Fighting Cancer, Michael Lawrence, working for Beit Izzy Shapiro as the Head of Development, an Israeli nonprofit that provides young adults, children, and even some older adults. In addition, we met with philanthropist Lisa Greer, who wrote the book, Philanthropy Revolution. We interviewed Larry and Laura Cohen, philanthropist in the community, both at UCLA and Jewish causes. Cindy Rogerway spoke about interest-free dreams with the Hebrew Free Loan Association. Casey Summer, legal firm for nonprofits, advising nonprofits. And the latest one, the founder of the Jewish Future Pledge, Mike Levin, 
who has a very interesting story to tell. I encourage you to listen. Thank you again for joining us on The Road to Philanthropy. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.